Do you know what I mean when I say that sometimes you need a second chance at making a first impression? So I, I needed a second chance at making a first impression with a 14-year-old young woman who would become my stepdaughter. So uh, the story is my, my uh, wife of 40 years uh, died suddenly in 2012. Uh, we were married. We were like teen brides, I guess. And, uh, and uh, I'm only 47 right now. Uh, <laughs> I was married at age two. Um, and, um, and, you know, about a year later, I met um, a woman who was the worship director at St. Clair's church and then she later become, became a priest and she had lost her husband and they had a daughter named Oceana. Oceana was 14 I think at the time that I met Julia and I had coffee with her and oh kind of liked her and and then you know one thing can sometimes lead to another and we were at that early stage of uh, relationship and and Julia had mentioned to Oceana well I, I'm, there's a there's a guy I'm seeing and we're just nice easy does it blah 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 and mentioned my name and I had never I'd never been to their house I'd never uh, met Oceana and and Julia and I had had a nice lunch on Campus and we were walking back to, uh, toward her house, and we parted company uh, like a about a block away from her house. You know, didn't want to impose me on 14-year-old Oceana at that stage. And, um, and Julia, now my memory and Oceana's are slightly different. Uh, <laughs> Oceana's memory is that I was I was just, you know, like sucking face, as she would say, with, uh, you know. <laughs> but no, my memory was I was just getting a, a little peck on the cheek from Julia as we parted company, and, and that's a solid memory on my part. <laughs> but the fascinating thing is that while I was getting this peck on the cheek from Julia, which is probably the first peck on the cheek that I'd ever received from Julia, a van drives by at Hill Street in Washtenaw, and I hear a voice yell out, Ken! <laughs> now, I'm already a little bit paranoid about seeing someone and, you know, being a pastor at that time of a large church and, you know, feeling a little self-conscious. And to hear my name yelled out at that moment was, it was Oceana. <laughs> it was Oceana getting driven. Now, what are the friggin' chances? <laughs> My second um, interaction with Oceana, I was invited shortly thereafter to go to, um, James Rodenheiser was the pastor, like the rector, they call him in the Episcopal world, at the St. Clair's Church, one of our host congregations here, and his son was getting married, and uh, he invited me to come to the wedding. I came to the wedding, and lo and behold, Julia was there, and we sat together at the wedding, and Oceana was there. She was an acolyte, you know, doing the altar candles and that kind of stuff and you know we had this kind of like awkward interaction where she kind of came up and I kind of reached out well, hi Oceana I'm Ken and she kind of made it clear with body language and 14 year oldness that she wasn't really interested in the conversation and I later found out that there, like rumor mill was spreading in St. Clair's and the people were coming out to Oceana and say oh I hear your mom has a new friend Ken we know him and we think he's great and you're gonna love you know it was like it was ridiculous yeah, yeah. 
So Oceana had every right, especially as a 14-year-old, having lost her beloved father, and you know, and then you know that's a, that's an awkward thing. And so, um, so Jul- Julia has a priest friend, uh, probably her best friend's name, Ernesto Medina, and he's the um, godfather to Oceana. Godfather is a big deal if you're a priest uh, in the Episcopal Church. I think Oceana has 17 godparents or something like that. But, but Nino, as he's called, is like the number one. And, and Ernesto came to visit Julia in Oceana and to check me out. And so he checked me out at a little coffee interaction we had. And then, and then he arranged to have a second chance at a first impression with me in Oceana. And he prepped her, he talked to her about it, he kind of set it up. He said, sometimes you need a second chance at a first impression. And so we're going to arrange a second chance at a first impression. I'm going to introduce you to, to Ken. And they, we, had, we had dinner at some place on well, Carpenter and... Uh, Washington, you know, the, the Middle Eastern place, and, and we, we, like we reestablished our footing there. And it was a beautiful thing to get a second chance at a first impression. I credit Oceana for uh, giving me that grace. Um, so we're starting a four-part series entitled Engaging the Spirit in Spirituality. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think for many of us, this, this would constitute a kind of an inter- reintroduction to the Holy Spirit, because many of us have a have a, the the place where we've gotten our impressions of the Holy Spirit, if we have impressions in the American kind of Christian milieu, is from th- something called the Pentecostal movement. Another term is the Charismatic movement. Let me just do a quick poll. Say, how many people have been to churches or had some, you know, not just a brush, but some connection to a Pentecostal or a Charismatic? church or prayer group or whatever just raise your hand if you oh actually that's that's more than i would have expected that's a significant number of uh of people well there have been some distorting um aspects of pentecostal theology and practice i would say especially in white versions of pentecostalism that i think necessitate for many of us a reintroduction to the Holy Spirit. But first I want to just mention what is the Pentecostal charismatic movement? Because whether you know it or not, many of your impressions or feelings about the Holy Spirit will have come from this movement. Well, the book of Acts chapter 2 It's the story of the uh, earliest uh, Jesus communities forming right after the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. And it tells us, Acts uh, chapter 2, that 50 days after Jesus was crucified, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came on 120 followers who were gathered in Jerusalem to to pray. And they felt it was was a transcendent experience, a, a group mystical experience. They felt wind. They saw like little um, tongues of fire over each person, and they began to speak in languages that they themselves hadn't learned. And this is called speaking in tongues. Tongue just means language. Over time, um, that kind of initiated a very vibrant uh, period for the Jesus movement that's recorded in the book of Acts with healings and remarkable things happening. But over time, that vibrancy that the Spirit brought uh, waned in what became known later as Christendom uh, until the early 1900s. 
And here's the story. At the request of a nun who was part of the Oblates of the Holy Spirit, Pope Leo at the time, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, in I think it was 1897, the nun said, why don't you write a letter to all the parishes and encourage people as the new, um, as we enter the new century to pray for a renewal of the Holy Spirit in the church, a new Pentecost. Pope Leo took her just advice by a letter. So the Pentecostal movement in a sense was started by a nun. <laughs> Um, and as, as fate would have it, um, he, he sent this out and he had Catholics praying for a new Pentecost all, all over the world. And on January 1st, 1901, which technically is the beginning of the new century, close to midnight, there were a group of Protestants in Kansas who were studying the book of Acts and they got really interested in speaking in tongues. Like, why doesn't anyone speak in tongues? They kind of got curious about it. And a preacher named Charles Parham laid hands on, prayed with, this was like what happened in the book of Acts, a, a single woman named Agnes Osman to receive the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. He had never spoken in tongues. And the, the story is that she started speaking in a dialect of Chinese and couldn't speak English for three days and was only speaking in this language she didn't understand. She was like in an extended mystical ecstatic kind of state and that was like the one of the earliest beginnings of what became the, the modern uh, Pentecostal movement. Um, a few years later the real catalyst for it came when a black man by the name of William Seymour, a preacher, received the Holy Spirit in the same way. I think he was prayed over also by Charles uh, Parham. Um, and, and, and William Seymour gets this immersion in the Holy Spirit where he's speaking in tongues and fe feeling all the feelings. And, and he starts preaching in Los Angeles, a place called Azusa Street. And there were black people and white people together on equal footing, men and women together on equal footing. This is like 1906 in, in racist uh, America. It was, it was extraordinary. It just, it kind of spread like wildflower. And that, that really is like the beginning, at least in the Western world, of the, the modern Pentecostal movement, or you might also say the charismatic movement. Um, it wasn't very long, however, when the old walls came back and there was like a white Pentecostal denomination called the Assemblies of God. And there was a black Pentecostal uh, denomination called the Church of God in Christ. Uh, one of the larger denominations on the landscape is the Kojic Church of God in Christ. And as usual, men were back in charge of everything in all those, in all those settings. So this is called the Pentecostal movement. And, and today, it's really the fastest growing religion in the world today, especially in Africa. Asia and in Latin America. Now Emily and I have both been, I would say, very significantly impacted, influenced by the Pentecostal movement. Um, like I think Emily would probably say I'm a Pentecostal. I would tend to say I'm a Jesus freak with Pentecost, with the Pentecostal leanings. So uh, uh, Jesus freak for me means I came to faith in the Jesus people movement when the baby boomers were teenagers. And uh, I'm going to see uh, Jesus Christ superstar for my birthday. My wife's got me, it's in Detroit. And that 
that was like the popular Jesus movement um, musical. Well, I was part of the Jesus movement. It started in Detroit for me. And I didn't know this then, but the Jesus movement was launched by a gay man named Lonnie Frisbee in California. He was on LSD and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he had visions of like hippies, like in the thousands being baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And he went and then he spoke in tongues and all the things happened and he started preaching and wherever he went, like young people would flock to him. And, and it was the beginning of what we now call the Jesus movement. Well, I was kind of a part of that. He, he was a gay man. He um, conflicted uh, as, as anyone at that time would have been in any kind of uh, religious setting. My first um, mentor when I was at the University of Michigan living in married student housing was a man named Joseph Arthungal. He was from Kerala, the southernmost state of India, and he had been part of the Ceylon Pentecostal mission. But he was from Kerala. It wasn't like white Pentecostalism here. It was Indian Pentecostalism, and he would wear a sari and take Saturday off and pray all day. And he was a very devout man, and he, he was Pentecostal. He would get a cold, and he would say, the devil should leave my blood dead. I don't understand why I have this cold. You know, he was very Pentecostal. I love that man. Um, after being mentored by Joseph, I, I was part of a charismatic, I would say an intense charismatic community that was centered here in Ann Arbor called the Word of God community, which was kind of the epicenter of an important global charismatic movement that affected the Catholic Church in particular. So I had about 15 years in that setting. So I don't mean to alarm anyone, but I've had lots of exotic Pentecostal experiences. I'm talking about speaking in tongues, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'm talking about falling over, like, you know, the big preacher comes and breathes on you and you fall over. I fell over with a whole group one time. And I'm, I mean, it was a remarkable, like you're standing up and then the next thing you know, you're down. And you're like, how did that happen? And you don't hurt yourself. I've caught people falling over. I've, I've, I've done all the things. And all the things have been done to me, have happened to me. And then, then generally speaking, I enjoyed a lot of it. And some of it was weird and kind of pressured and kind of funky, but it was, it was definitely a mix of, of good and bad. I would say that um, my openness to full inclusion for LGBT was prompted by what, what I would now describe as charismatic personal prayer experiences. This happened in like the 2000s. So I, one of them, I, I hadn't had praying like this, but I, had, I was praying uh, just privately, quietly in the morning. And I was like, I was seeing in my mind's eye, like, like uh, the Sea of Galilee and a, and a fishing boat. And there was like a man of that era working on nets and I'm walking toward him. And I see it's Jesus and I get kind of excited. And then he, he's working on nets by this fishing boat. And then he looks up at me and kind of like childlike with enthusiasm. He says, new nets. And then he says, go find. And then he gave me a name, a not uncommon name. I think it's like 35th in the list of names for men. Go find this name for me. And so like since then, I've always had like, if I meet someone with that name or that, that in their last name, I'm, I pay a little extra attention. Like what's going on with that, with that person? And then that was actually very 
very helpful. So I had experiences like that that really opened me up to um, changing my, my mind and my heart on LGBTQ um, questions. So the question that you might be asking is, well, why don't we shout and stomp and fall out here you know, <laughs> at the church? And, and th that deserves an answer. And the answer for me is like a lot of, especially the dominant like white forms of Pentecostalism uh, in the United States are really in a, I'd say in a state of pretty significant corruption. Um, on many levels. I'm, I'm very thankful my initial pastor in Detroit was in, he was a Lutheran pastor who was touched by the Pentecostal movement. He spoke in tongues, but he, as he got more connected to Pentecostal groups, he thought there's something really funky going on here. And he never brought that into the church that he led in Detroit, but he, it was always behind the scenes, and it was very much a part of him. And he was a very significant, he was like my first hero, my first Christian hero, I would say, was Dick Bieber. He recently, he's blogging, he's in his 90s, and he wrote a blog, he's in Canada now, and he's calling out white um, evangelicals and Pentecostals for like jumping on, the, drinking the Trump Kool-Aid and you know, he, it's like he's, he's, he's I love this man. Um, uh, another reason that uh, we're cautious about this is that um, a lot of our, our members here at Blue Ocean have experienced very significant religious trauma from abusive forms of Pentecostal and charismatic pray, prayer, especially uh, some of our members who are in the LGBTQ community. And so we, we just don't want to trigger that kind of, kind of stuff. And it'd probably be triggering for Emily and I, honestly. Um, uh, and, and just because we have that background doesn't mean everybody has to, has to have that uh, background. I would recommend this book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things by Sarah Bessie. If you have this background and you want to read a really sane book, this woman has been part of Pentecostal charismatic churches. She recently, not that long ago, left Vineyard. She was in a Canadian Vineyard church to, for a stand for LGBTQ people. And she's, one, she's uh, had been close to um, Rachel Held Evans and leading a very significant conference in the United States. She's a good writer. Sarah Bessie book is on the back table if you want to buy a copy or order one. Now, one of the earliest problems, um, I'm going to get to the Bible very soon. Um, one of the earliest problems for the Pentecostal movement is that it was initially tied to fundamentalist, a fundamentalist form of Christianity that was anti-science, anti-women, anti-LGBT, uh, often racist, uh, with, actually with ties to white supremacy. Um, and so um, the, the fundamentalist movement, the white fundamentalist movement in the United States kind of became the landing pad theologically for Pentecostalism, even though it was pressing all these boundaries in its early, early uh, William Seymour days. And I think this version of Pentecostalism, um, while it has brought our attention to the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of great, I've, I've gained great benefit from interaction with Pentecostal and charismatic forms of Christianity. It's also um, obscured, I think, who the Spirit is, um, the Spirit who animated and informed Jesus. So I think there's a need for a reintroduction to the Spirit. Um, I'm going to give that this morning quickly on, on how the Spirit is first presented in um, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, the, so the Jewish scriptures, and in the first book of, um, 
uh, one of the first books in, in the New Testament called the book of Luke, like our introduction in these two places to the Spirit is very informative. So in the Hebrew Bible, what, what Christians call the Old Testament, we meet the Spirit as the most expansive and inclusive manifestation of the divine that you could imagine. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it goes like this. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light. That's the Robert Alter translation, the best Hebrew scholar alive today. God's breath, the word breath in the Hebrew is ruach. And it means equally wind, breath, and spirit. So if you were, spoke Hebrew and you heard the word ruach, whether you translated it into English as wind, breath, or spirit would entirely depend on the context. And those three meanings would always just be like together in your mind with this word ruach, which Alter says God's breath. And then where it says God's breath was hovering, hovering describes a bird fluttering over its young, and Robert Alter in a footnote says this has connotations of giving birth and of nurture. So hovering in some translations it says the spirit was brooding, which is like a nurturing kind of image, ready to give birth. All these, all these ideas are together in this Hebrew um, um, image that uh, we have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And this, this really began a long tradition in Jewish thought of regarding the spirit, ruach, as feminine, as the, in fact, like the divine feminine manifestation of God. Um, this expansive picture of the spirit is also very intimate. So it's expansive, it's wide, but it's also very personal and intimate, and there's a sense of closeness in, in this language. In Genesis chapter 2, we have God appearing almost like a, a human kneeling in the ground, fashioning the first human from the clay, and then blowing it into its nostrils, which would be kind of like a kiss if you were to picture it, the breath of life. And this ruach, again, the breath of life. In Genesis 3, the next chapter, the humans, it says, heard the sound of the Lord walking about in the garden, the Garden of Eden, in the evening breeze. So like, that's like a more innocent way of understanding wind is like wind is spirit. And you know, like, what if you just were raised to believe that when you felt a breeze or a wind, well, that was God's spirit. Well, this is the picture we have in Genesis chapter 3. They heard the Lord in the evening breeze, the Lord walking about in the garden. So to sum up, the Genesis introduction to the Spirit is expansive. By the way, we share the breath of life with all living creatures in Genesis 1. It's not just a human thing. Um, and it's also intimate. It's as close as our first breath. There's a sense of nearness to the Spirit. And the first gendered image used is this hovering with its feminine connotations of childbirth and nurture. You with me? Okay, that's the first introduction. This, the, uh, the second introduction to the Spirit I want to take from the New Testament 
Um, that's Jesus and his followers. Now, we first meet the Spirit in the New Testament in the book of Luke. There were four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of those four, Luke and John are the most concerned with the role of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, um, some important things are going on where the feminine nature of the Spirit is very closely tied to the Jewish background. So I want to unpack that for you. So in Luke 1, we meet Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest who is a husband of Elizabeth, who becomes the mother of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. You with me in that train of thinking? Zechariah is a priest. He's the husband of Elizabeth who becomes pregnant with John, who's filled with the Spirit, and John becomes the forerunner, the prophet that makes people ready for uh, Jesus. Zechariah has his turn in, in Luke 1, um, serving as a priest, which was like a big honor. It didn't happen many times in the life of a priest. It was his turn to offer the incense in the holy place of the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem had three spaces. It had the courtyard, like where anyone could go, basically. Then it had the holy place where only the priests could go. And then it had the holy of holies, like inside the holy place where only the high priest could go, and that only once a year. So Zechariah is doing this special service in the holy place of the temple where only priests can go. And he, an angel appears to him. An angel appears to him and says, your wife, Elizabeth, though she's advanced in age, is going to give birth to a child, and his name will be John. He will, you know, have a significant role to play, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, given Zechariah being a Jewish man of that time, everybody knew at that time that they were not, they were in the second temple the second, like, built temple in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem's history. This temple was sometimes called Herod's temple because Herod completed the temple in the time of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, and Herod was corrupt. He was a corrupt king. He made, like, a fake conversion to Judaism. <laughs> um, Oh, I wonder where that happened. Uh, and, um, but he really was a servant of Rome. Um, so everyone, every, like the Jewish people at that time, understood that the second temple, which was their sacred holy temple in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, is missing some key ingredients that were present in the first temple, which was sometimes called the Temple of Solomon, Solomon's Temple. Solomon, the son of David built that first temple centuries earlier. And in that first temple, in that Holy of Holies, remember the Holy of Holies where only the one priest could go once a year, it was a cube-shaped room. And the presence of God in the first temple was something that the high priest would visibly encounter once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it would be like smoke. There, would be, there were angels called seraphim there, probably like burning, fiery angels. And, and they, would act, they would literally tie a cord around the priest's foot for him to go into the Holy of Holies and have this powerful encounter with the divine. And in case he fell over, they could pull him out. So it was like a big mystical experience to go into the first temple and have, and because the Ark of the Covenant was there and the presence of God was there. And the presence of God in the Holy of Holies at that time 
the, the you-can-feel-it-and-see-it presence of God was called in Hebrew Shekinah. I don't know if you've heard this term, Shekinah, would be like the Pentecostal way of saying it. It was a Shekinah, and this, was, this is a feminine noun in Hebrew, and it was understood to be a feminine presence of God, the Shekinah. The root of the word means dwell or settle. So it's kind of like that hovering of the Spirit, right? In Genesis 1 even, the Shekinah is the hovering, dwelling, settling over presence of the divine. And it's like the Spirit hovering at creation. And it was understood to be a feminine experience of the divine. So the temple worship in the first uh, temple period was much more mystical than later in the second temple period, when, which was the time of Jesus and his interactions with the temple. And it was marked by this experience of the feminine side of God, uh, sometimes called wisdom or Sophia, and also uh, Shekinah, the dwelling feminine presence of God. So this is the background the Jewish background to Zechariah's experience in the holy place when the angel appears with a message about Elizabeth's pregnancy, the child John who'll be filled with the Spirit. Zechariah would have known, oh, this is like how it used to be when the Shekinah presence was around and the feminine spirit hovered, brooded over Israel. Something like new is happening. Later in Luke chapter 1, while Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy, an angel appears to Mary, young Mary, saying, if you're willing, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Same kind of language, come upon you, overshadow you. The Most High will overshadow you, and you will conceive a child. This is the same kind of language that is associated in the Jewish mind with Shekinah, the feminine presence of God. So it wasn't like Mary was having like a male experience of God coming over her and making her pregnant. It was a feminine experience of the divine. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> what Luke is saying through all this, of this is that the coming of Jesus um, brought about by the Spirit is understood at that time as like a restoration of God as including this feminine presence that was so important to Israel called Shekinah that had been missing for so long that Jesus will mediate as you as we will a, a new experience of the divine as a Shekinah um, Icons are part of the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition. I learned this from Susan King, who does a great um, class on meditative prayer. She should do one on the Divine Feminine sometime, I'm thinking. But, oh no, it's not this one. It's, uh, somebody move my icon. Um, where is it? It's that one. Oh, it's this one. Um, so this icon is an ancient icon by the Eastern Orthodox. And the way you use an icon is you look at it and kind of with like a soft focus. You're not examining it. And it just has like a spiritual effect over time, a meditative visual representation. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a female figure here with an, this like aura. It's a, like a divine aura. And that would be a, a, a representation in Eastern Orthodox art of the divine feminine. And interestingly, there's a Jesus figure. He's an adult. I like the dark skin tones. <laughs> uh, he's an adult. He's dressed as an adult man, but he's smaller, and he's embraced by the divine feminine, and his aura is actually part of the divine feminine aura in the icon. 
you can see that when you come up. And that, that would be, this would be this tradition that's making its way through the church despite the fact that it hasn't been emphasized much by churches run by men, understandably. Um, so why is this so important, this understanding of this, the Spirit? Four implications. First, Pentecostalism or the sector of Christianity that has a special focus on the spirit, I think is really ripe for like a major period of repentance, renunciation, and reformation, which hap happens to different sectors of the church and needs to from time to time. I think that time is ripe for such a reformation in the Pentecostal sector of the church. You know, in, in religious settings where men have to be in charge and power is not shared equally with women or non-binary people, masculinity gets corrupted. It gets toxic. Um, it becomes infected, like with dominance and aggression. And, and then in those settings, religious power often unwittingly is used to support that male dominance. And if those settings are Pentecostal or charismatic, it can get, for lack of a better word, it can get icky like what you have is like dominant domineering sometimes narcissistic men prancing about on stage bragging about their spiritual exploits kind of using like spirit power to support their dominance and in those kinds of settings our understanding of the divine presence gets can get distorted there's like a layer of idolatry put over it um, I first had many of my charismatic experiences in settings that, that they weren't quite as overt as that, but they were, they were bad. They were, they, there was like explicit men should rule and women should be subordinate. That was like the thinking and the teaching. I mean, I started to interrogate that thinking in like late 1980s, and by the early 90s, I was teaching, no, women should be pastors just as much as men and all that. And, and then by the 2000s, I'm starting to question the traditional teaching on LGBTQ. And I would say, looking back, a big part of my doing that was having praying experiences, charismatic or mystical praying experiences, where I felt God as a feminine presence. And it was frightening to me at first. It was disorienting to me at first because I'd never heard about it. But I was like, you know, a charismatic person knows how to feel the Holy Spirit. I was feeling the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit I was feeling was feminine. As a straight man, that's kind of like mixes with your head. Like, what the heck's going on here? And this was happening for like a period of time and I had no frame of reference for it. Looking back, I think that was like the Holy Spirit, like starting to cleanse me of my absorbed like patriarchy and, and opening me up to like the real Holy Spirit who is a, is a wall terror downer, not a wall builder. Second implication. So the first is Pentecostalism is ripe for a major ref reformation. Second is, if you have ever experienced God as a feminine presence, that's normal. That's not weird. And it's very much part of the Jesus tradition. It's normal. It's not weird. And it's very much part of the Jesus tradition, if you've ever had an experience of God where you say, that felt kind of feminine to me. Now, when I say an experienced God, I'm, I'm referring to like 
special, so often fleeting moments where you feel or you sense or you intuit. People experience these things very differently depending on how they're wired. Where you, you feel some like wonderful presence beyond yourself. And if I were to put the feeling into words, the, the words would be, someone sees me. Someone is for me and everything's going to be all right. Like, that's what it feels like when you're feeling God. And, and if you've ever experienced God as a, as a feminine presence, I'm just saying that's normal. That's not weird. It's blessed by Jesus. The third thing, I think it's good to include this in your list of possible ways that a person might experience God. A possible way that a person might experience God is as a feminine presence. Um, you know, our connections are affected by our expectations, and if we never have the expectation, we're not as likely to have the experience. Fourth, imagine how we might feel differently about God if we thought God could come to us in this way. Imagine how we would feel about God, or the idea of God, if we thought that God could come to us in a way that we would experience as a feminine presence more than, say, a masculine presence. Now, God is beyond gender, but God is interacting with human beings, so he comes to us as, in, in the way that we're put together, we have feminine energies, we have masculine energies, and sometimes mixed, and, you know, so this is part of our encounter with, with God. Imagine how we might feel differently about God if we thought that God could come to us in this way, would we feel a little more open, a little more trusting? Would it seem more appealing to many of us? So we're going to um, do a couple things to close. Uh, we'll have our meditation, as Emily mentioned. Um, and I wanted to mention that during communion, as we come forward for communion, Emily will give the instructions. Uh, Emily and Susan King are going to be up here offering just a, an anointing prayer, meaning putting a dab of holy oil on your forehead and a blessing for anyone who wants to be more open to this experience of God as a divine, like feminine presence. It just, it's a way of signaling to God. The priests in Israel were anointed with oil as a sign of the Spirit, and we're all like priests invited into the Holy of Holies is kind of the idea. So if you would like that, there will be two people with holy oil stationed up here. It's fine to give it a miss and just go on to communion or stop by for a quick blessing for communion. And we're going to end with uh, what we did two weeks ago. I wanted to introduce it two weeks ago. It's Psalm 23 by Bobby McFerrin. He's a fantastic composer and artist. Um, but he put it into the feminine. He, he said she instead of he. Um, he. He dedicated this to his mother. He was raised in a, in a black church, and his mother was like the main spiritual presence in the family, and he was thinking about his mom, and then he was, he was watching his wife interacting with the kids, and he was saying, oh, this is... This is a normal way to experience God's unconditional love in this way. And so he, he wrote this song and this kind of chanting song we'll, we'll play in just a minute. So what I'd like to invite you to do is maybe just for 30 seconds, you're going to pick out someone in your life who represents that 
that good feminine presence to you. It could be a spouse, it could be a mother, you may not have had a mother where that works. It could, it could be a pet, it could be a dear friend, but someone who represents just a good feminine presence in your life. Just take 30 minutes to think about that person. And now let's listen to Psalm 23 by Bobby McFerrin as our meditation.